I'm going to interrupt our series on our values. We have one left, and I'm interrupting that today. We will finish that next week. But today is National Sanctity of Human Life Day. This was a presidential decree in 1984, and it's a day that is set apart in which we affirm the sanctity of human life. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, I want to bring a message that speaks about the sanctity of human life because the Bible speaks to all things that pertain to life and godliness. And sometimes we compartmentalize issues in our life and we say, well, this is a personal issue and this is a political issue and this is a biblical issue. But the fact is, for a Christian, every issue of life is a biblical issue. We have an authoritative book that informs us about each of these issues in our lives and where we ought to be on that. And so this morning, I just simply want to take you back to the birth story of Jesus and say, what can we learn about the sanctity of human life from the life of Jesus Christ? And so if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we'll begin. And I want to point out, before I start reading, that there is an unusual focus on the prenatal realm here. So that is pre-birth, in the womb. As you read through your Bible, you'll find that there are different emphases, different places. But rarely do you find a passage of Scripture that is so rich in speaking about what's going on in the prenatal realm, in the womb of women. And... In this passage, you'll find two mentions of the word barren, two references to birth, three references to conception, and five references to the womb or to the uterus. And so look for those as we read along Luke 1, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son. And shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me, According to thy word, and the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come into your presence. We count it a privilege to be named as your people through faith in Jesus Christ. We claim the promises of your word that you are in the midst of us, 
and that your Holy Spirit indwells us and that he illuminates your word for us. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would turn the light on and that you would make it clear in our minds as to what your position is on this issue. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me simply to explain your word, to point out those things that you have embedded in there so that we can understand the consequences of this. Father, help me to make it clear and not confusing. And I pray and ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would empower me with unction from on high. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see this emphasis on the prenatal realm, and, and there are references before this text and after this text that we didn't get to read. But the reason the emphasis is there is because this is ground zero for the incarnation of Christ. What is being described here in Luke chapter 1 and also described in Matthew chapter 1 at the birth of Jesus is the incarnation of Christ when Jesus became a man. And what we find here in the womb is ground zero for the incarnation of Christ. This is where it all begins. Why would God make that emphasis? Why do you think that God would clear off a space in Scripture and say, here in Luke's record, I'm going to emphasize the womb of Elizabeth. I'm going to emphasize the womb of Mary. I'm going to talk about the incarnation of Christ, not of Jesus as a grown man, but as an embryo. Well, the answer is two-part. One is to show that it was not a normal child that was born who became a god. Right? If we did not have this information... People could misinterpret the incarnation of Christ and say, okay, he was a normal kid. He was born the normal way, and at some point in his life, he became a god. He graduated to the god level. And you know that there are some groups out there that actually teach that sort of thing. They don't believe that Jesus was God from his birth, but that he became a God because of his righteousness and performance. The other reason that we have ground zero in the womb when it comes to the incarnation of Christ is to show that God did not simply, uh, that he was not simply possessed by God right? Uh, we could misinterpret the incarnation of Christ and say, okay, he was a normal man. He didn't become a God, but God used him as a host, and he possessed him to come to earth and do the work. Why is it important that we know that it, it wasn't a man who became a God, and it wasn't simply a man possessed by God? Because neither one of those would be able to atone for our sins. You see, the only person who could atone for our sins would be the God-man, the perfect combination of God, the perfect combination of man without sin to make the sacrifice for our sins. No other formula works. The title of this message is The Miraculous Conception. The Miraculous Conception. Notice that I did not call it the Immaculate Conception. The reason I didn't call it the Immaculate Conception is because the Immaculate Conception is an aberrant Catholic doctrine that actually teaches that Mary was born without sin, and that's how she was able to become the, the mother of God. Do you understand that's not supported anywhere in Scripture? We don't have any record of Mary's birth, nor does God ever indicate that Mary was without sin. He said she was favored among women not above women. And so this is not the immaculate conception because 
Jesus was not just immaculately conceived, he was miraculously conceived. He wasn't just conceived without sin, he was conceived in a miraculous, supernatural way. What is being documented here in Luke 1 is the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation literally means in the flesh. In the flesh, right? We use that word, that, that, that carn beast for carnivore, a meat eater, carne asada, uh, talking about meat, carnival, a festival of the flesh. So incarnation literally means in the flesh. And so Jesus in the flesh, it refers to when God the Son took on human nature and joined the human race as a human being. This is the greatest phenomenon in human history. It is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. I want to dig into that a little bit. I know you may not care about the theological term, but there was a great debate about it in the 5th century. Uh, the hypostatic union means the union of the divine nature and the human nature in one person, Jesus Christ. And so what it's describing there is that God, the Son, became God the man without ceasing to be God. And yet he was fully man and fully God in one person. Never does he refer to himself in the plural as the Trinity does because this is a hypostatic union. This is two in one person. He is both God and man without ceasing to be the other this is reflected in verses 32 and 35 watch this look with me at your text verse 32 says this he shall be great and shall be called the what son of the highest and so that's referring to him and his deity he is the son of god but notice it goes on to say and the lord god shall give unto him the throne of his what his father who David, whoa, wait a minute. How can he be the son of the highest and also be the son of David? How can he be the son of the highest and inherit the throne of his father, David? It is indicating his hypostatic union that he is both God and man in one person. Again, in verse 35, it says, The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee, who is he born of? Mary, shall be called the Son of God. So again, both natures are reflected there in verse 35. He is the Son of Mary in a human sense, and he's the Son of God in a divine sense. And yet he is one person coexisting as one. In the incarnation, the Son of God, a human nature, was inseparably united forever with the divine nature in the one person of Jesus Christ. Yet with the two natures remaining distinct, whole, and unchanged, without mixture or confusion, so that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly, perfectly, holy God and truly, perfectly, holy man. That's from the Evangelical Theological Dictionary. What a statement. At that moment in time, at that point in time, God the Eternal Son, who did not have a fleshly body, 
took upon himself a human nature and was eternally united and inseparable from that point on, and yet he never confused or co-mixed those two. He is perfectly holy God and perfectly holy man at the same time. Now, I know this is a big theological concept, but that's what Luke is talking about. When God has Luke write his gospel, this is where he begins, and he begins with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he begins in the womb. Let's take a look at some other scriptures that help explain this hypostatic union. If you have your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2 was believed to be a hymn of the early church and that they were singing it metrically to describe and celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know, we sing every time we get together, right? And some people don't understand that. Some people who may not enjoy music say, why don't we just get to the teaching? Let's just get to the preaching. Let's just get, well, let's do that. Then you have other people who love the music and say, well, let's just do a lot more music unless that preaching thing, right? But do you understand the purpose of the music is not only to praise God, but it is to teach us. The songs that we sing have meaningful content to them. Victory in Jesus tells us that you and I are more than conquerors in Christ. These songs that we sing are teaching us important doctrine. That's why your hymnal is full of, of theological terms that talk about atonement and efficacy and those sorts of things. And so the New Testament church literally sang Scripture as part of their worship. And in Philippians chapter 2, we come into the verse of this old hymn, and it says of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm a big advocate that the Bible is understandable. God wrote it for you and I to understand. Are there some deep things in the Bible? Yes, the incarnation is deep. The Trinity is deep. Those are some things that require a little bit of work for us to dig out. But you know what? Anything that's valuable requires work, does it not? If you're going to be a gold miner, you're going to have to put in some work to dig the gold out of the ground. And if you're going to enjoy the riches of the teaching of God, you're going to have to dig in a little bit and get it out. But as we do this, there are some principles, there are some tools that we can use simply reading and observing and asking questions of the text. Let me just, let me just do that for you this morning. When this is talking about Jesus Christ being in the form of God, and then he takes upon himself the form of a servant, he's made in the likeness of men, he comes in the fashion as a man, here's some things that we can know. He was God before he was man. Right? It's right there in the text who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. So what I know from just reading that verse is that Jesus was God before he was man. He's not a created being. He is God, part of the Godhead. And at some point in time, he became a man. Here's another observation we can make. 
he was an equal member of the Trinity. Notice again, verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, the phraseology may be a little hard to work through, but what it is saying is he wasn't grasping at anything to be considered equal with God. He was equal with God the Father, God the Son. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. He was an equal member of the Trinity because this is one of those doctrines where, where, where cults are formed and where derelict groups uh, divide off and they teach things like Jesus was a God, but he was not the same as, as God the Father. He was like a lower-level God, and then he became a man. No, 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 that is not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. By the way, when it says he's in the form of God, that means the exact form of God. He looked exactly as God. Another observation we can make is this, and this is where it pertains to the incarnation. He was made in the likeness of men. Was made. You might want to underline or circle that word made. Check it again. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So while Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is not a created being, he has been God from eternity past and he'll be God into eternity future, there was a point in time on the calendar when he became a man. He was made in the likeness of of men. That word made means to come into existence. It is the root Greek word where we get our English word generate. So it's the idea of him being generated as a human being. So the pre-existent Son of God came into existence as a human being. Are you with me so far? So eternal God, co-equal with the Father, became a human being. He added human nature to his being and he forever united them for all eternity it is the exact same word that is used in describing the incarnation in john 1 remember john 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and then verse 14 goes on to say this and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and so the bible tells us that god is a trinity in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god jesus christ the word was god and he's been with god he has been god for all eternity but then he became a man and was made flesh when luke 1 at the incarnation and I love what John goes on to say. We beheld his glory. What is John saying? He's saying we were eyewitnesses to the hyperstatic union. We witnessed that he was no ordinary man, 
but that there was something distinctly from God about him. We beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. That word only begotten means the only one of his kind. There has never, ever been an incarnation before or since. This is the only one. Only one member of the Godhead became a man, and that is God the Son. He is literally the only one of his kind, and that is why he's the only one who can atone for our sins. While the conception, or we might say insemination, was supernatural, everything else about Jesus' humanity was natural. That's what it means for him to become a man. So he was not born in a bubble. He was not hatched out of an egg. The insemination was supernatural, right? God said that the Holy Ghost would overshadow you and you would conceive. But from conception on, everything else about Jesus' humanity is natural. From earliest prenatal development to birth and delivery and life outside of the womb, from adolescence to adulthood, Jesus was truly human in every sense of the word. Now, that's not to take anything away from his deity. He is still truly God. But sometimes we say, okay, he was God, but he was kind of human. No, he was fully human and fully God, and he lived a sinless life, which none of us could do, which made him the sacrifice or eligible to be the sacrifice for our sins. Consider another scripture, if you have your Bible with you, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans is the greatest treatise on salvation in the entire New Testament. While the entire Bible is the unfolding drama of God's redemption, Romans is Paul's magnus, magnus opus upon the salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. And guess where he begins in his thesis on salvation. He begins with the incarnation of Christ. Romans chapter 1 let's jump in at verse 3 concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord which was watch it made of the seed of David according to the flesh so let's count those for a minute Philippians 2 tells us that he was made in the likeness of men right he, he was generated as a human being John 1.14, he was made in the flesh. The exact same word, to come into being as a human. Now we have it again in Romans 1.3, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was made of the seed of David. This is so important because we have the same word made here, but here we are alerted to a new detail. And it is that little phrase of the seed of David. Do you see it there? If you have Romans 1, 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, which was made of the seed of David. God is giving us more information about the incarnation for those of us who care enough to know and to say, well, how did this happen? What is his substance like? How do you marry divinity and humanity? God says, let me tell you, he's my son. He is co-equal with me as God the Son, but he was made of the seed of David. That word seed is translated from the Greek word sperma, and you can guess the modern English equivalent, right? Sperma. 
It's not just used in the Bible in the sense of human reproduction. That is, it is not just the, the, the male genome. It is used in the broader sense of all germination. And so if you search that word out in the Bible, you'll find it being used of the seed of mankind, the seed of animal kind, the seed of plant life. It is the idea that it is the, the, the basic DNA package of any reproductive life. And so God is saying that Jesus was made a man by the basic DNA package of his ancestor, David. Now, listen to this, this description that I got from MedlinePlus.gov. So I, I'm not quoting here a theologian when it comes to this. I'm quoting a government website that's dedicated to medical information. Listen to this description of fetal development from MedlinePlus.gov. When the single sperm enters the egg, conception occurs. The combined sperm and egg is called a zygote. The zygote contains all of the genetic information or DNA of the baby. Wow, it's almost like God knows science, isn't it? Of the sperma of David. And what we know is that that zygote contains all of the DNA code that is needed for reproductive life for a baby. So I have one important question for you. I have one burning question for you this morning. As we transition from the theological over to the physical, the question is for you, at what point did Jesus' human life begin? At what point did Jesus' human life begin? Let's go back to Luke 1. We know that he was made in the flesh. We know that he came into existence. We know that he was generated. And Romans 1.3 said, Of the seed or sperma of David, giving us that, that DNA link. Now look back, Luke 1.31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. Can I tell you, can I be honest with you? I never paid attention to that until this Christmas. I happened to be reading Luke one thirty one again and it dawned on me that when God is talking about the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, he points out that he was conceived in the womb of Mary, that he has been God the Son in human flesh since the conception. Since the conception. Now look, I understand it's a big issue, right? Pro-choice, pro-life, abortion, not abortion and, and I understand all the arguments that go along with that. I even understand the, the sympathetic feelings of a, of a young lady who feels like she is trapped and that she doesn't have what she can, uh, needs to be able to, to care for that life that may be growing in her womb. And, and, and I, I know that I've got you over a barrel, but can I tell you it's God's barrel. 
This is what God is teaching us about Jesus Christ. That is, His human life began at conception. And if you and I are going to take a look at that, and if we're going to view the world through the lens of Scripture, we're going to have to come back to that same conclusion and say, oh, wait a minute, this whole life thing, this whole human thing, doesn't begin when that fetus can survive outside of the womb. It begins where it began with Jesus, which is at conception. Notice a few things back in our text. Mary had an understanding of conception that was revealed by her question in verse 34. What did she understand by what this angel said to her? What would have been the understanding in the first century at this time? One verse 34, after the angel says that you're going to conceive a child by the Holy Ghost and you're going to give birth to the Messiah, her immediate question, verse 34, Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She knows exactly what the angel is talking about. He is talking about the reproduction of human life in the womb. And she says, how's that even possible? Because I haven't done what it takes to reproduce life in my womb. And so she understands what conception is. I'm telling you, in the first century, the author's understanding of this was that Jesus' life began at conception. His human life began at conception. Not only that, as we begin to read in this passage, we understand that there are two pregnant women here. The first is Elizabeth, who is Mary's older cousin, who has been barren and not able to conceive with her husband. And God sends an angel to her husband and says, Look, I'm going to grant you a child, and that child's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he goes home, and she conceives, and she has a child growing in her womb. And the angel tells Mary this. And so Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's about six months pregnant, right? And so she is at that point, that second, end of that second trimester. Watch what happens here. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. Mary arose in those days, went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zechariah, and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, you might think there's nothing extraordinary about that. Babies in the womb kick, they punch, they prod. It depends on uh, their growth stage or what you ate for lunch. Or you say, okay, this baby's moving her womb. But we read on, verse 42, And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy what? Mary just found out that she was going to conceive a child, did she not? She immediately left for Elizabeth's house. This is early in the gestation period for Mary, perhaps the first few days or weeks. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation or greeting sounded in mine ears, watch, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now, granted, that's not the normal experience of baby movement in the womb, right? But we are told that John the Baptist was unlike any other baby, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb because he had a specific designated role to be a forerunner for Christ. And at six months in the womb, this child has conscious life. 
He can't eat himself. He can't feed himself. He can't articulate. But God tells us that infant in the womb had conscious life at six months before birth is given. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament law recognized human life in the womb. We don't have time this morning, but in Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23, when God says that whole thing about, uh, about uh, an eye for an eye and a life for a life, if you go back and read the context, it says, if two men are striving or fighting, and they hurt a woman that is with child, and mischief follows, in other words, a miscarriage happens, and that baby dies, then it is life for life. When? When the baby's in the womb. Why? Because it's human life from conception. You say, oh, okay, Justin, I, you know, I know you got to say this, and you believe this, and you're a preacher, and you're, you believe that's what the Bible teaches. But look, buddy, this is the 21st century. We're in the United States. We have, we have evolved. We have grown in our understanding. That's not a baby. That's a fetus. It's not viable, that sort of thing. Well, if that's the case, then why do we have a federal law that protects fetuses in the womb? If you look up fetal homicide, you'll find that the U.S. law recognizes, uh, recognizes the same as the Old Testament. In 2004, Congress enacted and president signed the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which recognizes the child in utero as a legal victim if he or she is injured or killed during the commission of any of the 68 existing federal crimes of violence. Isn't that amazing? So the only distinction between fetal homicide and abortion is whether or not the mother wants the child. So the federal law is if a woman has a child and she wants the child and there's a federal criminal act that is perpetrated upon her and she loses the child, then that criminal will get charged for both lives, the life of the mother and the life of the unborn child. And this is where it gets even more interesting. In legal terminology, they have to define their terms, right? It said if, it's, if the child in utero is a victim. And so the law defines child in utero as a member of the species of Homo sapiens at any stage of development who is carried in the womb. Wow, that sounds surprisingly a lot like the Bible that tells us that that is a human life from conception. And so theologically, I believe that the incarnation of Christ began at conception in the womb of Mary. So let me ask you, at what point did Mary have the right to abort her baby? Was there a time in there where she could have done that and done no harm? to the incarnation of Christ or to your salvation then if that is the case then it must be the case for all babies would you bow with me so we bow our heads and